This podcast brought to you by ACES, the American Society of Information Science and Technology, the Society for Information Professionals, by the IA Summit, the premier gathering place for information architects and other user experience professionals, by Boxes and Arrows. Visit boxesnarrows.com slash about slash participate to be a part of your peer-written journal. And special thanks to Axure and Morin for sponsoring Boxes and Arrows, as well as the many other sponsors of the IA Summit. Adrian Massonari, instructor of new and digital media in the School of Communication at Loyola University, Chicago, examines current texts written about user-centered design, information architecture, and interaction design to understand the ways in which users are discursively written into the design process. Adrian suggests that personas and their use is as much motivated by political realities within new media organizations as it is by the need to incorporate users' needs within the design process. I hope everyone enjoys the podcast. Cheers. Okay, so... Why discourse? What is discourse? Well, as we were reminded yesterday in Andrew Hinton's talk, language actually shapes reality in very deep ways. Um, he gave lots of great examples of that. Um, examining the language we use as a discourse the, um, as a, and the discourse um, that we use as a community can help us understand the implicit assumptions that we make about our profession and who are we designing for, really, these big questions. Okay, so what is discourse? Well, <laughs> French philosopher Michel Foucault spent a lot of time thinking about discourse and the ways in which discourse is used by social groups to uh, construct social reality. So how we talk about the world is really important. It helps us understand the world. He suggested that discourse is the space in which various objects emerge and are continuously transformed. So it's this moving kind of process. Um, Jillian Rose, who's actually a professor of cultural geography who studies visual culture, suggests that discourse is made up of knowledges, institutions, subjects, and practices which construct what is and is not part of a community of practice, discipline, or field. So we can start seeing the power of discourse is what we can talk about and what we can't talk about, and what we choose to talk about and what we choose not to talk about, and the conflict in the space as that comes together. So we can also examine the nature of a discourse, um, and we can figure out what social reality and how it's meaningfully created. Um, importantly, we can think about this. Discourse is powerful, powerful stuff, much like language. Um, so we better understand how we're using it, and how we're shaping it, and how it's shaping us. So there's why discourse. <laughs> All right, so what did I do to actually get at this discourse? I looked at a bunch of materials, usability, user-centered design, and IA text, web design text generally, um, white papers, blog postings, um, exchanges on SIG IA, and the interaction design mailing lists, um, conference proceedings like this one, um, although not this one, because I wasn't doing this work today. <laughs> but I'll be using this in the future. Um, and so these are a bunch of the different sources that I looked at for discourse, for understanding the field. I also did some interviews. This is part of my dissertation research originally, um, interviews with some of the experts within the field. And I want to make one caveat um, before we continue, and that's that these are expert accounts, not lived experiences of information architects. Um, there's a, an important difference, but I don't really want to get into it right now. <laughs> so if you have questions about why it's an important difference, 
um, come talk to me at the break and we'll have a long conversation about it. Um, but just to know that there's a difference between experts talking about the field and what our lived experiences of the field are. Okay. So let's talk about the user. Yay, the user. We're so happy. Um, so what did I find? Okay, well, there's really three different, largely three different views of the user within our community. Um, but let's start with this term, the user to begin with. It's problematic. Perhaps we all know this on some gut level. We use it all the time, um, and it's a hard term to replace with something like customers. Um, but, and it's not quite right, and we can't really figure out what it is, but it's problematic. Um, Ultimately, this term, the user, suggests an instrumental and a one-way relationship. So in this case, we are the designers. Um, those people like Jane and Michael in the beginning, drawing, <laughs> are users. We mine them for their data, we observe them in their natural environment while they work and play, and then try to figure out what they want. We try to get into their head. Um, we do the designing of the products, and they end up using them. It's a very tool-based, instrumental, one-way relationship. But we know that user is not a monolithic group. We all have sensitivities to this. This is partly why we got into the field to begin with. We're, um, we're interested in ha being, having this empathy for our users, and we know that they're not monolithic. They're very complex and fragmented, and they have lots of abilities, disabilities. Um, but this isn't really captured in the term the user. And as Tufti always notes, pithily notes in his talk, um, and he did when I saw him, and I know he's said it a million times, you know, the only two groups that have, that talk about their customers as users are web designers and drug addicts um, or drug dealers. So, <laughs> um, so the question becomes, are we all addicts? Um, I'd like to take credit for that line. Really, it's Edward Tufti. So I actually don't want to take credit for it. <laughs> So this is sort of the larger discussion of how we view the user, and I'm taking very broad strokes here. But let's look a little bit more in depth in some of the themes that emerged in my exploration of our discourse as a community. Okay. So we have the stupid user, first of all. Um, this is fortunately going out of fashion. Uh, hopefully most of us are not, we don't think of our users as stupid. Um, but perhaps maybe inside we do sometimes watching usability tests. Just click the button already. It's right there. Um, if you've ever been in the usability test and thought that. <laughs> so the idea of the stupid user, um, if you've seen the show, how many people have seen the show, the IT crowd before? Um, the, <laughs> if you haven't, you should watch it. It's a great BBC show. Um, these two IT professionals are sitting in the basement of this large corporation and they have to support this large staff of people, um, the users. And one of the things they keep happening during the recording motifs within the show is that people will call up and say, you know, my computer's not working, and you just hear on the phone, we only hear the side from the IT professional, saying, uh, did you try turning it off and turning it on again? Um, this is an experience we've all had, right? You call Comcast or your cable provider for your Wi-Fi network, and the first thing they say is to power cycle your modem. And they say that means, you turn off your modem, you wait five seconds, and then you turn it back on again. And that's their big suggestion and solution for what we should do. It's paternalistic, and it makes us kind of feel dumb, right, as users. Um, 
kind of two separate tr like themes that also emerge in this, uh, this sort of trope of the stupid user um, is that we position ourselves like our users. So we start designing for ourselves. This was a very popular trend in early <laughs> computer development. Right? We would see these systems that only the people designing the system could actually use them. Um, I've worked with groups that that's happened. And it's very frustrating to explain that, no, not everybody's going to want to be a power user of a feature. Why don't we hide it a little bit more and make it le uh, the, the interface less cumbersome? OK, so that's one trope. The other trope is that um, <clears throat> we also tend to see our users as problem and error makers. <laughs> And perhaps um, this is an early, even earlier sort of um, theme that came out of literature very early on in HCI was this idea that you know, users are really the problem. It's not the system's fault that it's not working right. Users are just not capable of making the right decisions when faced with an interface. All right, so let's discard this theme for a moment. Let's assume that we've moved past this, which hopefully we have. <clears throat> so we come here. Okay, so now we have users as victims of bad designs. And you could start to see why this might be slightly problematic. Um, perhaps you've heard of this person. Okay, so Jacob Nielsen, great, great person for advocating for user-centered design, has also done more to um, encourage the idea that users are, users are victims of bad design. Um, in terms of user-centered design generally, so the development, as we all know, is now structured around users and their practices. And we're doing things like you know, looking at wireframes and usability tests and talking to users and interviewing them. And yet the users still remain somewhat outside of the design process, right? Um, so and such well-intentioned approaches sometimes continue to perpetuate um, a notion where users are considered objects, okay? And design may become an activity of making users fit um, into design's preconceived notions of what they should be doing. So just as before, where we have designing for ourselves, now we have the problem of, well, we're going to shoehorn your, <laughs> we're going to figure out what you need and give, you, give it to you even if you don't think you need it. Um, or you're going to become a victim of the situation. Well, that also brings up another sort of secondary, secondary theme, we all become the heroes. <laughs> we swoop in and help these poor users. Um, Clay Spinuzzi, who a, 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 comes from a field called activity-centered design, um, did an entire discussion of this and talks a lot about the worker as victim. And he says, the worker as victim is portrayed as needing to be rescued by a heroic figure, um, an information designer. This heroic figure is enlightened, principled, and capable, and is able to employ user-centered design methods to defeat the tyrannical system and rescue the victims. The designer listens to the worker slash victims, synthesizes their comments and feedback, and develops their means of rescue. So in some ways, to use the lolcat, um, <clears throat> we all become <laughs> organizers of our users um, and tell them what their problems are, I mean, in worst case scenario. Again, painting broad strokes, these are generalizations. Not so we'll get to a little bit more specifics in a second. Okay, lastly, we can envision users as co-designers. Um, this is the participatory and activity-centered design tradition. Uh, you see it growing out of a lot of Scandinavian countries. 
um, where designers openly enlist people to be participants in the design process. Um, users are not perceived as a problem to be fixed. They are actually a critical source of knowledge about how they work and the technological system in which they sit, and that, that can best support that work. Um, unlike user-centered design, in participatory design, user input is integrated throughout the design process and is not limited to the usability testing phase of the development cycle that many of us are used to. Um, this is actually an image, um, if you may be familiar with Becky Stern, she's an artist. Uh, she did a workshop at a recent participatory design conference where she asked people to come in and talk about their experiences of using technology. And she interviewed them and worked with them and sketched stuff and then gave them the tools to actually create their own sort of interfaces into, with their technology. So in this case, this is called the Compu Laptop Stock, um, and it's <laughs> which is great. But it's supposed to support the need for privacy, warmth, and concentration while in a public area. It's kind of hilarious. She has a lot of great, other great stuff on her website, so you should definitely check it out if you get a chance. Um, so this may not be the ideal interface that all of us have in mind when we think about um, users interfacing with technology, but at the same time, there's something interesting. It's individual, it's flexible, it's organic, right? And there's something really um, powerful about the fact that she engages people and works with them and has them then also help build the, the actual body sock. <laughs> Um, and knit it with them. So it's kind of interesting. So this is another theme, users as co-designers. Okay. So we're going to step and start talking a little bit about the tool of personas. We've sort of seen these large three themes that come out in discourse, and um, this is discursively constructing the idea of the user. And we're going to talk more specifically about how personas support um, certain ideas about the user and who these people are. Um, hopefully, you are relatively familiar with personas. And you recognize this. This is uh, Alan Cooper and Robert Ryman um, suggests that users are victims of bad design, so figuring up that theme, too, that we just talked about, um, but are unable to be effective design partners. Okay, they're not good at being partners in the design process. Um, you could see the here that we describe. I mean, every time I read this, I just, it's almost the point where it's, uh, it's bizarre. <laughs> we make up pretend users and we design for them. Like, I, it just amazes me that this is the discourse that we have going on here. And I'm not to slight the idea of personas or that they can be used well, but this is how this has been presented to us. This is a, an exercise in make-believe, right? Um, hopefully based on user research, but that doesn't come out until later. <laughs> um, and they suggest that this is necessary. We have to do this for good interaction design. Must, must, must do this process. Create these imaginary users, personas, and put, um, play the design on, like play dress up <laughs> with them <laughs> and make-believe, and in that universe, float designs by them and try to use these as conceptual tools. Okay, so maybe you've seen some of the personas. This is a really great example of a well-conceived persona. So I'm not all down on personas. <laughs> but just so you know, there are greater, better, worse ways to do this. This is from Razorfish. Um, so we have a significant amount of information here, right? 
So we have a profile, we have some background information and customer needs, but importantly, we also have the scenarios built in to, uh, to the persona. So you actually see how this persona aids design, right? There are certain sort of scenarios, and we can see the resultant behaviors. Um, it's still a little prescriptive, but it at least is kind of sensitive. You get the sense that this might be a real person, might be a real picture, and um, that this is probably based on good user research. Somebody's actually sat down and talked to somebody. Okay, so this is another set of personas, and this is for OpenMoco, which is um, a Linux-based mobile phone, smartphone system. So we have a lot less detail here. <laughs> we have a bunch of very short profiles and then scenarios. Um, and we're not really sure, I mean, looking at this, I don't really know that there's a lot of user research that went into this, or these are just sort of stereotypes of the users that they'd like to see, maybe like market segmentation. Um, if you notice here, just to, I'll read you quickly, <laughs> a couple of the scenarios here. So Emily says her scenario is, my phone has to look cool. I personalize it with decals, charms, and ringtones. I talk on it everywhere, so my phone style is everything. Of course, it has to work too. I usually talk on the phone, but recently started taking pictures and recording videos. My phone is my favorite accessory. Okay, so the problem with this is not that these aren't true statements about a class of user but that they sound so stilted. This doesn't sound like anybody we've ever talked to. No one talks like this. Um, you can also look at Steven, who's the business user. Um, my Moby is my life. Without it, my business would suffer. I take conference calls while driving th down the M25. If someone texts me, I need to ring them without taking my eyes off the road. Good to know. Very, uh, so try not to create any more accidents with the mobile phone. Um, and since I use my Moby everywhere, it needs to be durable. The last thing I need for it is to break after one drop. Okay, good information, but again, it doesn't sound like someone actually said any of this. It's kind of not really even a scenario. It's kind of a list of commands. Um, you as a designer should do this. Okay, this was a, <laughs> this is actually not a persona, but this was recently too good to add, not talk a little bit about. This was a consumerist had uh, received leaked copies of sort of market segmentation um, and sales profiles of people who walked into Best Buy stores. And the reason I'm doing it, I'm explaining what this, it, you know, bring this in, is this is what the extreme example of some personas that you may have seen look like, which is just a list of sales attributes, right? The value proposition, we even call it a value proposition. Delight me with personalized premium or ultra premium experiences. It's so separate from user, <laughs> the person, Jill, pa one page profile, I guess is her name, <laughs> this uh, 40 to 45-year-old woman, it's so separate from it that we've just now lapsed into um, marketing speak about her real desires. And there's nothing in here that's really sensitive to her needs as a user. So this becomes strictly a market segmentation tool. Okay, so what I find particularly fascinating, and this is a terrible blurry picture, um, but I was taking it on sort of, well, I didn't take it on the slide, but it was on my iPhone, um, in a very dark, <laughs> dark kitchen on someone's refrigerator who worked for Microsoft. Um, there is this, which is the target users for Longhorn. Um, it's a series of magnets, and basically over here on the left, you have Melissa, Nicholas, and Toby, these sort of cartoonish figures. Um, that you're supposed to pop out, which obviously this person hadn't yet, <laughs> pop out of the, uh, magnets, the magnets, and then 
connect them to over here on the right with statements like, um, the PC is where my friends are. I'm in meetings all day long. It's all about keeping my customers happy and try to match up the persona to what they would say. I think this is interesting. And I'll tell you in a second why. Um, this is another example of a stand-up standee for a persona named Eagle Eye Edward. Um, this is, <laughs> there's a lot of texts that talk about uh, using personas and then marketing the personas to your organization. Uh, in a recent paper from Microsoft extolling the virtues of personas in their development process, they actually used the term gimmicky. <laughs> they said, give away gimmicky promotional items. Um, and they give examples of this. Squeeze toys, beer glasses, mouse pads, um, and sprinkle them with persona images and information. Um, and then also put up posters and flyers. Um, and then they actually sent out, and they said, in an ongoing persona fact of the week email campaign, each persona gets a real email address used occasionally to send information to the development team about them, about that person. Oh, man. Okay. So why are we doing this? Why are we spending so much time with personas? Well, again, Cooper and Ryman say, Few users are consciously aware or able to clearly articulate their goals, and they tend to focus on low-level tasks. Sounds a little paternalistic to me. And there are some problems with this. As Dan Safer has noted, half the personas out there are entirely made up with no user research to back them up. So now we're creating these fake mugs and posters for people that don't even really exist. In most cases, no one on the design team has talked directly to users to find out who they are, so designers come up with an idea of a user type. The resulting personas are like the designer's imaginary friends, my favorite phrase ever. Um, <laughs> these aren't, this is where personas go horribly, horribly wrong, right? They're not based on user research. Um, Mike Kunavisky actually sh shows that there's another side to personas, that they're actually serving an important function, other than just being sort of this conceptual tool that we uh, throw our ideas against and use as, during the design process. So he says, rather than describing a feature for infrequent large-scale Fortune 1000 purchasers who use SAP, you can say, it's for Leonard. And marketing, engineering, and design will know the qualities of the audience and how they use the feature. The rest of the benefits from the, of the procedure are side effects of this communication benefit. I want to underscore communication benefit. It's a communicative function that these tools are serving. So this leads me to this idea, which is probably not new, but I'm taking ownership for it anyway today. <laughs> um, these personas become boundary objects. Um, Jeffrey Bowker and Susan Lee Starr, in Sorting Things Out, a book that a lot of us have read, talk about the, um, the idea that there are certain objects that contain this interpretive flexibility within them um, that both lay people and experts use differently, but they can serve multi-purposes within organizations. So for us, personas are a convenient shorthand of encapsulating complex data, or can be. They can be a really important conceptual tool. For developers and the people we're partnering with on projects who may not have the sensitivity that we do um, to avoiding designing for oneself, Personas may help foreground user needs and become very important tools for sensitizing the team to the larger 
issues of what the users actually want and desire and need. And for project managers and analysts and those of us who serve in those functions, producers, and those of us IAs who are in the function of helping decide requirements, um, these actually can be used as a political tool within the organization. Again, going back to Konevisky's statement that you can say, it's for Leonard, and have the discussion revolve around a feature in a way that you, so you're using the persona as a way to marshal sort of evidence for why a feature should or should not appear in your product. Okay. We have a lot of implications and conclusions. This is why we're, um, and hopefully I'm going to have enough time for questions because I'd like to hear what you all think. So what is, what's to make of all of this? I just threw a bunch of stuff out there, a bunch of ideas. So what does information architecture and user-centered design discourse say about users? Well, I'd like to say that it's all great, but <laughs> it's not. Um, we often see users as resources to be mined. Um, especially with the persona technique and other sorts of user research ways in which we do user research, um, we distance ourselves. We see them as separate from us. Uh, we want to understand them. For all good reasons, we want to understand them. <laughs> We're trying to be user advocates within the organizations that we work, but we often mine them for information. We also tend to flatten the differences between them, and I think personas are a great example of how that can be dangerous. Leonard becomes a Fortune 1000 customer who wants to use SAP, but Leonard has all kinds of abilities and disabilities, has all kinds of assumptions built into Leonard is a person, or should be a person, right? But using these tools, sometimes we flatten the differences between the users that we're trying to help and assist and co-design with, hopefully. We also sometimes undervalue the tacit knowledge, that's which unspoken knowledge, and position ourselves as experts with the user. Um, Non-intentionally, I think all of these are well-intentioned things that we're doing unconsciously. Um, but certainly, the discourse around the community suggests that we are experts. Um, and we are experts in certain things. Don't get me wrong. We're experts in how to perhaps translate um, to really get at a design that's going to serve a population of people. But we're not experts in understanding the daily realities of someone sitting in an organization using that technology, or what their experience with that technology is going to be like six months from now, and how they're going to be shaped and shape it. We also use users <laughs> for political purposes within organizations. Um, I hope, hopefully you can think of in your own mind some examples where you've had discussions. <clears throat> I can think of some for myself, perhaps with someone who comes in from above and says, well, we really need to add this feature to the product. And all of the IAs, you see them blanch and go, okay, why? What's it for? And they're like, well, you know, uh, we just need to add it. <laughs> we just have to have it. It's the only way we're going to be able to sell this tool to someone. Personas can be a great 
great tool at that point to sort of wield for political purposes, but they're problematic, right? And we need to recognize that they have some issues inherently in them. Um, and we're using them for political means. We're using them to as sort of a tool that we, we wield within the organizations that we work. And I leave, I mean, this question is sort of an interesting one for me um, because I think in some ways we do feel more comfortable with these simulated users than our actual ones. They're less messy. They don't talk back. <laughs> they don't question our decisions. If I were going to come back to another 20th century French philosopher to understand this, um, Baudrillard suggests that we live in a state of hyperreality, or at least that's the modern era, postmodern era is hyperreal. Um, so that objects that we create become more real than the thing that they're standing in for. Um, and if you think of Las Vegas as a perfect example of this hyperreality, uh, if you go to any of the casinos there where they have simulated Eiffel Towers, <laughs> there are people walking around and it's sort of like, it's almost more real than being in Paris itself, kind of strange. Um, personas sort of serve this function as simulacra, which is that which does, has no reference points. Um, again, something I can talk in depth, in depth with you if you'd like to hear about it more after the talk. Um, but basically the gist is this, we need to not mistake the map for the territory. So persona is a useful tool, but let's not assume that they are users. So instead, we might consider including users in the design process as partners. Um, and returning to Clay Spinuzzi suggests, what if usability problems cannot be neatly divided into cause and symptoms? If so, it is difficult for designers to be heroes, IAs to be heroes, or for workers to be victims because there is no tyrant to overthrow, no dragon to slay. That means workers' innovations and the destabilizations they encounter become more important for designers to examine as they attempt to find ways to contribute as partners on equal footing. This is called democratizing design. It's something that I think we might want to look at as a community and continue to encourage within our community. And last but not least, and I want to leave lots of time for questions, which is why I've been running through this, because I've noticed that there hasn't been much time for reflection or questions recently, and I don't want to be, <laughs> suggest that I know everything about this. Um, I'm just coming with some, offering some advice. But let's talk about a few conclusions. Um, Robert Hookman suggests that in designing the obvious, that we need to understand users and then ignore them. I think this is very dangerous. This sort of rhetoric, this sort of discourse, um, is disturbing to me, hopefully to you as well. Uh, we work in a field that intimately understands the importance of classification and categorization and language and the importance of what political and social consequences of putting people into boxes are. And when we start doing stuff like this, just understanding users and then ignoring them, we have a really potentially um, difficult road ahead of us as IAs. I really think that we need to think strategically about how to integrate users as partners within our work. This is not easy. Uh, many people have talked about there's all kinds of 
you know, difficulties in integrating users, and at some point, users become experts, and then they're no longer useful <laughs> within the organization in the design process. But I really think we can take a page from the participatory design world and think about integrating our users with us as co-designers. And most importantly, I think this is already happening. If you've spent much time on sites like Flickr or Twitter or Dig or any site that allows for user-generated content, we call it content, but it's actually, I, in some ways, I would say design. We are already being co-designers within the process. We're just not choosing to invite those folks to be partners with us. Again, I don't think that's easy, and I'm, I would be open to talking about like, ways that we could do this strategically, but I think it's something that we might want to consider doing. <clears throat> this is actually something that came out of a lot of work that I did on the dissertation and um, separate from this process. But one of the things, and going back to that very beginning slide when I talked about being a user advocate and yet feeling so disconnected from these users who I was supposed to have great empathy for, is I think a function of being an information architect in a lot of our organizations. We are inherently the ones who will point out problems. <laughs> we kind of are seen as the naysayers. I don't know if you've noticed that in your own experiences, but oftentimes we're the ones who have that unique ability to see both the 30,000 foot view and the details. And we struggle with that. We have conflict around that. Um, lots of times people don't want to hear <laughs> that their business model is not great. It doesn't really support user needs. But we need to understand this and be, as well as having empathy for users and for the people for whom we are designing and designing with, we need to have empathy for ourselves. We are in a unique position within most organizations. It's a position of conflict and tension. And lastly, and this is my sort of own bone to pick, um, <laughs> within the design studies community, those people who study design as a practice, uh, there's sort of this critical design practice that's arisen. And I don't mean critical as in pointing out all the flaws. I mean critical as thinking about reflecting upon the process of design. So I'm suggesting that maybe now, um, the field is ready to have a critical information architecture practice, one that is reflective, reflexive on the process and tools and you know, politics of the, the work that we do. Um, it's sort of like a meta-dialogue about our field. Um, and hopefully this is something that we could talk about and think about. To hear even more presentations from the 2009 IA Summit, point your browser to boxnarrows.com and click on the podcast link. There you'll find access to the iTunes feed and more information about each presentation. Our heartfelt thanks to the organizers and sponsors of the 10th Annual IA Summit, the presenters, and of course to the global community. We look forward to feedback about future episodes that will be of greatest value to you, our listeners.